Let us pray. Silence in us any voice but your own gracious God. Help us to love. Help us to believe. Help us to be open to the power of your word, that in its hearing we might be transformed, and that in that transformation we can seek to serve you in this world so hungry for your great love. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Mark, beginning at the 17th verse of the 10th chapter. Let us hear God's word. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, for not, but not for God. For God all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age houses, brothers, sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, life does not come with a handbook. Neither does parenting. And given that, one of our favorite books ever remains What to Expect When You Are Expecting. Now, my domestic partner reminded me that I actually was not expecting any of the times when she was, but you get the general point. To have a resource like that was so helpful. We simply needed reassurance 
as we do now when our children are young adults, that things are okay. And if they're not, that they will be. What to expect when you're expecting. Expectations are funny things. Three things can happen. They are not met, they are met, or they are exceeded. Now perhaps you've been to a movie about which you've read rave reviews and all your friends say, you've got to go see this movie. And you walk out of the theater and say, I don't know what the fuss was all about. Or, conversely, you go to a restaurant, you read about it on the spot, you show up at the spur of the moment and you leave sated and pleased, your expectations having been far exceeded. Expectations are funny things. The Chicago Cubs did not win a World Series for more than 100 years. And people expected that streak to continue year after year and decade after decade. That expectation even took on a persona, that of a, of a lovable loser. And then two years ago, the Cubs won the World Series, defying all expectations. And having done that, now when they lose, their fans become even more annoying and insufferable than when they were lovable losers. <laughs> or there's Rochester and snow. Now we proudly expect a bazillion inches every year so that when it doesn't happen on time or it doesn't happen at all, we don't quite know what to do with ourselves. So we need to find another topic to complain about. Maybe even the warm winter weather that we're experiencing. Expectations are funny things. And they can also be serious things. Perhaps you followed the trial in Chicago of the police officer Jason Van Dyke. Accused of murdering a 15-year-old young man named Laquan McDonald in 2012. Now people were preparing for what was the expectation, what had typically been the case, that is, the acquittal of a white police officer. Churches were praying and protesting. My seminary and others were preparing for whatever community response would follow this verdict's announcement. And then the announcement itself was made. Guilty. No one expected it. In fact, in expectations, those expectations were defied. And now Chicago faces a new reality, a sense of relief for once about all of this, and even the real possibility of police reform. Expectations are funny things and serious things and important things. When I met, meet with couples preparing to be married, I said, forget everything else, but remember two words, communications and expectations. And if you articulate the second in a way that makes the first healthy and sustainable, you'll be all right. Expectations are important things. A young man approaches Jesus with a question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes through a kind of laundry list of the Ten Commandments. We've heard it just this morning, and 
The young man says, Jesus, teacher, I've done all of those things ever since I was a little boy. And so what you think this young man will say to Jesus next is kind of understood, if not articulated. So we're good, right? I've done all these things. I've checked all the boxes on the list. We're good, right? Whatever that young man understands eternal life to be, and it's not exactly clear what he does mean in the question, is now guaranteed, or at least it is in his own set of expectations. Then Jesus speaks out. He clearly appreciates this young man's earnestness, his faithful devotion. But then he becomes a little melancholy about the whole thing. Jesus, looking at him, we are told, loved him, poured out compassion for him. And he said to him this, Yes, you've done all those things, but you lacked one thing. Go and sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then and only then can you come and follow me. And the young man heard this. And we're told he was shocked and grieving because he had a whole lot of money and possessions and wealth. Expectations are funny things. This young man's were turned inside out and upside down. He was rich so that when Jesus told him his goal was attainable only if he divested himself of his wealth he was shocked and grieving. He knew what a big lift Jesus had put before him. And he goes off. And we wonder what happens to him. Does he do what Jesus requests? Or is he unable to respond in kind? And then Jesus debriefs this whole situation with his followers and in those few small verses, he utters some fairly iconic words. How hard will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? How hard is it relocating the young man's expectations about eternal life? How hard it will be to enter God's kingdom? It be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone to enter who is rich, the kingdom of God. Presbyterian Outlook editor Jill Duffield writes that the young man is unable to relinquish the image he has of himself for the sake of the one that reflects his creator. Jesus is looking the rich man straight in the eye, Jill says, and still he cannot hear and heed the word of the Lord. He is shocked and grieved. Jill writes, I can understand his response all his life. His money has equaled access, favor, special consideration. No doubt he expected Jesus to affirm his, his piety and obedience, to give him a pat on the back and send him on his way. The rich man perhaps thinks, I work hard. I got into a top-notch university. I volunteer with my church. So the rich man kneels before Jesus looking for yet one more seal of approval, one more accolade to add to the long list on his resume. But Jesus, loving him, 
asks that he stop acquiring wealth, status, affirmation, and start relinquishing power, money, privilege. In order to follow the one who doesn't puff himself up, but pours himself out. Then Jill says this, This is not what a person who already knows the right answers, who already assumes he is living the right way, wants to hear. No wonder he is shocked and grieved and leaves. Now, this story, like stewardship, is about money. And it's about more than money. Money, the M word, like the P word, politics or the S word, topics we don't discuss in polite company, let alone church. And yet all three are topics that rise up regularly in the Bible, and we do well when we talk about them. So this is about money, and about more than money. We do several things with this story. We Teflonize it. Oh, I'm not rich, we say. So this can't possibly pertain to me. Or we symbolize it. We can't think Jesus possibly means to give everything away, can he? Or we particularize it. The story is about that young man, him alone. Jesus would have a different demand for me if I were asking him the same question. Well, we say perhaps to all those questions but perhaps not quite as well. Money matters to Jesus, to us. How we earn it, how we spend it, how we give it away, money matters to Jesus. Author Megan O'Gliben writes of the church and our missed opportunity to offer an alternative to our culture of consumerism and, and capitalism. The church does not provide an alternative, she says, We should be talking about an alternative vision to consumerism and capitalism. But rather, we've done a pretty good job of marrying the two together and accepting a cultural understanding of the role and power of money. And we know what that looks like, do we not? If you turn your TV on this afternoon and go up and down the channels at any moment, you'll discover church service upon church service, black and white church alike, purporting something called the prosperity gospel, which I don't think is the gospel at all. It encourages people to give and give generously, even sacrificially, in order that they might become wealthy. It equates financial wealth with God's favor, God's blessing. And then it does one thing more that feels even scandalous to me. It equates the financial success of any church's pastor with the success of the church itself, that God has blessed that pastor, generally a him, God has blessed him, and therefore the church, maybe with a private jet here or a big old mansion there. And it saddens me, because I can only imagine people supporting that vision desperately, many of them unable to afford even anything close to what is suggested. God doesn't work like that. I don't believe that. God does not want us to be wealthy. God wants us to be faithful, which does include generosity of finance, not to receive a blessing back, 
but to share God's good news with the world. And more so than that, generosity of spirit. Give it away, he told the young man. Don't accumulate it. So money, the hymn word, yes, to all of this, to that young man, to us, a clear realization of the power that money can have over us, regardless of how much we have of it. But this articulation of a disrupted expectation between Jesus and this young man goes even deeper than that. I think it does for us as well. Now perhaps it is money. But perhaps it's our time, or perhaps it's a value or a belief that we've held on to so strongly. We believe it's the right thing as we've been busily and legalistically practicing our faith. And then we ask Jesus the question, and he looks us squarely in the eye and deep into our soul, and he does the young man the same thing. He knew for him what needed radicalized, what needed transformed, what expectation needed recalibrated for him and for each of us in order to draw us ever closer to God's dream for our lives. Now making the stewardship case is easy, and money does matter. So whether it's how we approach our resources or how we support our church, we need to ask the question and consider the response. But at a deeper level, when we ask Jesus that core question, how will my life matter now and how will it matter forever? We must be ready to have our world rocked. If we are not being transformed every day as we travel with Jesus, then our dive needs to go much deeper than that. David Ewart asks, if we imagine Jesus looking at and loving us, I wonder what is the one thing missing he would see? And what is it that he would ask us to do in order to finally be fully following him? And David Lowe's asks, what is it Jesus is asking of you right now? I have no idea. That's something you will need to figure out. But Lowe says, if you're anything like me, when you hear his voice first, you'll freeze, terrified that you've been found out and grieving all the plans you've made for the perfect life. But then you'll hear him speak again, uttering a word that binds only to set free, that wounds only to heal, that kills only to make alive again. You'll hear the voice that is, that tells the truth. And so, expectations disrupted and expectations defied become expectations transformed in truth, by truth, like our very lives, like our very souls, now and for all eternity. Amen.